by the way. And if you would, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. And as you are turning to Romans chapter 3, which is where we'll be studying from this morning, I'm going to read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, as we begin our time together, I want to read something to you. It says here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This week, Reverend Franklin Graham issued a call to pastors, to leaders in the church, to take a moment at the beginning of our services and pray for the President of the United States. And that's what we're going to do, because he needs a lot of prayer. I wouldn't want that job. This isn't a biblical thing, or pardon me, this is a biblical thing, not a political thing. And you have to be able to discern between the two. And so today, let's pray for the commander-in-chief, that God would do a work in his life. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. I think of how God surrounded him with Daniels and people like that who could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego speaking into his life. He needs it. So let's pray together, will we? Father, we do come before you now this morning, and we lift up our president to you. Lord, um... You know all that he has to deal with on a regular basis. Lord, what his wife goes through, what his children go through. Lord, as he is the most polarized figure in the world, it would seem. Father, so much pressure, we can't even imagine what it would be like to have to make the decisions he makes. So, Lord, today we pray as a church, Lord, in obedience to your word for those that rule over us. We pray for wisdom, guidance, direction, discernment. Lord, we pray that his eyes would be turned toward you. And Lord, we pray for unity within our government, Lord, where it is so divided. And God, we just pray, Father, that you would intervene, that you would strengthen him today, strengthen his hands and those that serve alongside of him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, Romans chapter 3. And this is definitely a biblical thing. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. If you would follow along. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." The Apostle Paul opened this epistle to the Romans by revealing 
the details concerning the glorious message of the gospel. Then, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, until chapter 3, verse 20, he established an open and shut case that all mankind is guilty and without excuse before God. Whether you are moral or immoral, religious or pagan, Jew, Gentile, heathen, or Hebrew, every single person alike is born in sin with no way of saving ourselves. We are all under the wrath of God, destined to destruction in hell apart from divine intervention. And once we understand this, it brings us to the realization that we have a serious problem on our hands. And the supreme question becomes, how? How can we come into a right standing with God? How can we know that we have the hope of heaven when we die? The Jews had their answer to that question. They felt that all that you have to do is keep the law. The only problem with that is it's impossible to keep the law perfectly. The law makes us aware of our sinfulness. It can never make us righteous in the sight of God. Now, others may respond by saying, well, I'll just perform good works, and my good works will cancel out the bad works when they're weighed on the scales of heaven as if there were scales in heaven to weigh out our works, which there aren't. And the problem with this is that we could never do enough good works to be worthy of or earn salvation. That is why Paul stated in this chapter that there is none righteous. No, not one. Someone else might chime in and they might say, well, what if I am sincerely seeking spiritual enlightenment? Am I not seeking God? Will I not be accepted for my efforts and my attempts? Again, the apostle Paul responds to that question by saying, there is none who seeks after God, all have gone their own way. With the presentation of the irrefutable proof, it becomes clear we need a Savior. The evidence is in. The verdict has been reached. We are all guilty as charged. And like those who heard the preaching of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, it says they were convicted, they were cut to the heart, and they said with one accord, what must we do in order to be saved? And that brings us, folks, to the turning point in the book of Romans. As the Apostle Paul reveals how God provided the solution to our insolvable problem concerning salvation. How could we be made righteous? He tells us here, it says in verse 21, but now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's a reference to the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. One person referred to this section of Scripture as the heart of the Bible. A pastor was once asked, 
that if you could have any verses, any six verses out of the Bible, and the rest of the Bible would be taken away, which six verses would you want? And he responded by saying, I would select these verses right here, Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, because all of God's gospel, the good news, is there in a way that is found nowhere else in the word of God. This is probably some of the most important passages in all of the Bible. So pay close attention. In the following verses, the Apostle Paul examines the doctrine of salvation from God's point of view. And it begins with a contrast. He says, but now. We're all guilty. We have no way of saving ourselves. There, you'd have to keep the law perfectly to be made righteous, and you can't. But now. God has provided his righteousness for the unrighteous sinner, not based upon his or her ability to perform or to keep the law of God because they couldn't keep it, but by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is why he says it's apart from the law. It is separate and distinct from the law. And this wasn't some made-up false doctrine. This doctrine of salvation and righteousness apart from the law is firmly established within the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. The Jews had a great reverence for the Old Testament Scriptures. However, it did not reveal how to be made righteous in and of themselves, but it did point to a Messiah who would provide righteousness for them. They couldn't achieve it on their own. Within the Old Testament, you have the law. The law reveals God's standard. Here it is. None of us can measure up to that standard, which ushered in the sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system was put in place to reveal a need for atonement for man's sin. But the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were offered were just a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that would one day come in the person of Christ. Under the law, listen carefully, under the law, God required righteousness from man. But under grace, he gives righteousness to man. By faith in Jesus, in his righteous life, in his righteous act of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we are have righteousness imputed to us. Righteousness is what the Father required. It is what Jesus became. It's what the Holy Spirit convinces us of our need for and what faith secures by his grace, apart from the law, we can be, and you might want to make note of this important theological word, justification, justified. We mentioned it at the close of our last study, but in verse 24, it says, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How is it that we can have a righteousness apart from the law? Here's how we can be justified freely by his grace. The word justification, it is such a wonderful, wonderful word. It's a legal term. It's the act whereby God declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sins 
and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us and we receive it by faith alone. It's the act of God removing from the believing sinner his guilt, the penalty incurred by that guilt, and bestowing a righteousness of Jesus Christ himself in the one who believes. And that means that we now, by faith, not only stand innocent and uncondemned, but actually righteous to the point as if we have never sinned. God justifies us. He looks at us as though we never committed the crime at all. Now, Paul just said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But to the person who trusts in the finished work of Jesus Christ, they are justified and it's as if they never sinned at all. Do you understand that this morning? Can I get an amen to that? This justification has come to us, the word is, freely, gratis, gratuitously. It's nothing that we could do. It's without cause in ourselves. It was free, but it was not cheap. It cost the father the death of his only beloved son. Folks, listen. God didn't sit in heaven and look down upon the earth and found something in some people that recommended them to him in order that they might be saved. God gave salvation to us who deserved hell. There won't be one person in heaven who deserved heaven except the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only person. But there will be all of us who were deserving of hell but are going to heaven because of the grace of God. The grace of God. Grace is that spontaneous generosity from the heart of God without expecting anything in return. You don't have to respond to the grace of God, but it's there available for you. All of this brought about, here's another theological word. We're getting deep this morning. The word is redemption. You have salvation. You have justification. Here's another word. You want to make note of this one. Redemption. Redemption. It says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Three principles are involved with the doctrine of redemption. First of all, paying a ransom by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, They sang a new song there in heaven. Worthy are thou to take the book, to break its seals. You were slain, and you purchased us for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The doctrine of redemption, there has to be a price paid, a redeeming price, and that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. Second principle involved with the doctrine of redemption is the removal of the curse of the law. When man sinned, you remember what the Bible says? He was cursed from that day forward. It was passed down to all of us. We all have it. But with redemption, there is the removal of the curse of the law. Here's what it says in Galatians chapter 3 in verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It goes on to say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus went to the tree of Calvary and he hung there and the curse, 
He became a curse for us. Third principle involved with the doctrine of redemption is the release from the bondage of sin into the freedom of his grace. Three principles involved. But there are also three words used for redemption within the scriptures. The first word that is used is agorazo in the Greek. It means, listen carefully, to buy in a slave market. Paul used this word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 20 when he wrote, You were bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Jesus bought us in the slave market. What slave market were we in? Of our sin. Whoever commits sin becomes a slave of sin. We were under the dominion of sin. We were in bondage, in slavery, to a sinful life. Jesus, with his own blood, purchased us while we were in the slave market. Second word used for redemption in the scriptures is the word exagorazo, which is, again, the word that we just read a moment ago, Galatians 3.13. Look at it again. It says, Christ has redeemed us, there's the word, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He not only bought us in the slave market, but this word means he bought us out of the slave market. He bought us while we were in there, but he also bought us out there in redemption. Ah, third word. And this is the word that is used in Romans chapter 3, and it is powerful. It is the word lutro, and it means to set free by paying a price. Do you understand? He bought us in the slave market of our sin. He bought us out of the slave market of our sin. He bought us so that he could redeem us so that we, would, we could be free and never have to be slaves any longer. That's what redemption provides in Christ. You don't have to be a slave to your sin any longer. You don't have to live in bondage to a dominion of sin any longer. Christ purchased you. He redeemed you. So you never have to go back into the slave market of sin. You've been redeemed. Hallelujah. You've been redeemed. You've been bought. In writing to Titus, Paul put it this way. He said, looking under the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Great verse for the deity of Christ, by the way. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 when he said, knowing you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The redemption price was the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice, his atoning work made it possible for a righteous God to justify the believing sinner on the basis that justice had been served. It had been satisfied. Paul explains this process in the next verse. When here is, a, here is another, this, this passage of scripture is full of theological words that are so significant. Salvation, justification, redemption. Here comes another one, propitiation. Look at what it says in verse 25. Whom God set forth, 
speaking of Christ, to be, there's the word, a propitiation. Circle that word. Make a note of it. Propitiation by his blood through faith. Jesus became our propitiation. He did so by God setting him forth. It literally means, when it says God set forth, it means to place before the eyes, to set forth, to expose to public view. Jesus, when he died on the cross, was placed in public view, open humiliation, dying for the sins that he did not commit. And in so doing, he was our propitiation. The word propitiation is the Greek word hilasteron. It's a word that carried the idea of appeasement or satisfaction. The Greeks in their culture had an understanding of this particular word. They used it when they would try to buy favor from their pagan gods, appease them through a means of propitiation, satisfy them in some way by a sacrifice perhaps that they offered. The Jewish people understood what Paul meant because within the Old Testament, this word is also used 20 different times in reference to the Ark of the Covenant and specifically to the mercy seat. Let me take you back for a moment to the Old Testament and help you understand propitiation. God gave Moses specific instructions when the nation of Israel was wandering in the wilderness to construct a tabernacle. A tabernacle, for lack of a better word, was a church in the desert that they would pack up and move wherever the cloud of the glory of God moved. They would set up the tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be a picture of the throne room in heaven, the place of worship in heaven. It was to be symbolic. That is why God was very specific where he wanted everything that was constructed to be placed. It was his house, this goes here, that goes there, this goes here. And one of the things that he told Moses to build was the Ark of the Covenant. What was it? The Ark of the Covenant was the physical representation on the earth of the throne of God in heaven. Inside of that Ark of the Covenant that was made out of acacia wood and then covered in gold, inside of it was the Ten Commandments that God had written on two tablets of stone, given to Moses his law. The law was placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm going to share something with you. Just think about this. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. The Ark is a type and a picture, listen, of Christ. Made of acacia wood, speaks of his humanity. Clothed in or encompassed in gold, speaks of his deity. What's inside? The law. What goes on top of the Ark of the Covenant? A piece called the mercy seat. It's the lid on top of the Ark. It's called the mercy seat. God said in Exodus 25, I will speak to you on the basis of my mercy, on the mercy seat. So one day a year, the high priest, who by the way, the Bible tells us Jesus is our high priest. The high priest would pass from the holy place in the outer veil through the inner veil into the holiest of all places with blood in hand for the purpose of making atonement on behalf of the people. He would pass through the holiest of all places coming before the throne of God on the earth and making atonement for the people and he would cover their sins. He, he was given a, listen, 
propitiation. It covered their sin. It did not remove it. It covered it. The people's sins would be atoned for. Listen carefully. This is what Jesus has become for us. He is the sacrifice that bore God's wrath upon himself. And in so doing, God's wrath that should have been poured out on us is now turned to God's favor available to us. God did not set aside the demands of the law to set sinners free. He has set the sinner free in Christ by satisfying the demands of the law as God's justice was satisfied when he poured out his wrath on Jesus at the cross. Christ paid the price, suffered the penalty for our redemption, becoming our propitiation. Why would he do that? Paul tells us why. He says, in order, verse 25, to demonstrate. This is a demonstration. His righteousness, not ours, but his. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? It means that God provided a way to forgive us and yet maintain his moral integrity. He forgave us without condoning our sin. And he did so by directing toward himself in the person of his son the full weight of wrath that we deserved. And God's holy character was not compromised in any way. He remains just because the price has been paid for sin. Through the death of Jesus, the Father was just in punishing sin and now can justify those who are sinners. That's amazing grace right there. So he punishes his son so that we don't have to be punished. The price has been paid so that we could be saved. The wrath was poured out so that we could obtain salvation. It was a substitutionary death. It was in the cross that God is exonerated from any charge of mankind as being unjust. All the stored up punishment that was amply deserved by the human race for sin was poured out without restraint on Jesus at the cross. God didn't spare his own son, the Bible says, but he freely delivered him up for us all. And by doing that, sin is paid for, not condoned. And now, and now by faith, the believing sinner is saved by the mercy of God. The blood has been shed. God speaks to us on the basis of his mercy. He gives us what we do not deserve. And Paul says here, because of this, God is just, and at the same time, he justifies. When you really think about this, I and mean, when you really dive into this, it's, it's a mystery. I mean, it's a mystery that I believe heaven will unfold to us, but this mystery is solved in the person of Christ. He is the key to unlocking all that this means in our salvation, our redemption, our justification, being our propitiation. 
Christ's death on the cross propitiated, satisfied God the Father and reconciled man back to him. The way to a right relationship with God today, it's not your attempts at being a good person. It's not your religious effort. It's not our efforts in humanitarianism or service projects that makes us righteous in the sight of God. It's recognizing that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, that we are sinners. Lost, destitute, without the ability to save ourselves and then humbly coming by faith and trusting in Jesus, then we are justified by his grace, for we have been redeemed by his blood, for he has appeased the Father by offering himself as our propitiation, us unworthy sinners. And why do all of that? Here's why. Because he loved you. Because he loves us. Do you think that God offers you salvation because of all the things you've done? Folks, listen, you couldn't do enough. I could never do enough. One of the emotions that should be produced in the heart of the person who begins to understand how they are saved, what they're saved from, and what they're saved unto, you know what the emotion should be? You know what the response should be? I'll tell you, humility. Total humility. That is why in the next verse, Paul asks a rhetorical question and responds to it. He says, where is boasting then? And he answers it, it's excluded. <laughs> boasting is banished. There's no place for pride. No one's saying, man, I'm saved. I'm so, I had it so together and God just said, you know what? I'm going to save you. I think you got something I could work with there. <laughs> no, that wasn't why. God looked at us and knew there was no other way. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Paul wrote this in a parallel passage as it related to the omission of boasting when he said in Ephesians chapter two, listen, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one should boast. Again, parallel passage saying we've been saved by grace. It's not in us. It's outside of us. Too many people living today thinking that they're going to be saved because of what they do or what they've done or because they went to church or because they walked an aisle or because they own a Bible or something like that. If there's any indication in your mind today that you think you're saved because of what you've done, you're misinformed. Let me just take the pressure off and say, you can't do it. But Jesus did. There's no boasting at all. There's humility. But then he asks another question. Verse 27, by what law? Of works? And then he answers, no, but by the law of faith. Was it your works that did it? No. Was it keeping the law? No, because that's impossible. Then what law are we talking about? Here it is again, the law of faith. Believing. That, that's the work. 
The work is believing, trusting in what Christ did. That's it? That, are you serious? I don't have to do it the old-fashioned way, earn it. No, you can't. You just, you receive it. You accept it. You agree with the Bible that you're a sinner, that you fall short of the glory of God. And by faith, you say, Lord, I trust you. I trust what you did for me. I believe it, Lord. I believe in the atoning work of Christ, that you're the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you. I believe it. Save me. And he does. It's by faith. As Paul brings this argument to a close, he reveals the conclusion of the matter. Here's the conclusion. Stacking up all the evidence. The verdict is in. The charges have been issued. Here's the conclusion. Verse 28. Therefore, in light of everything I've told you, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. In other words, man is made righteous in the sight of God apart from what he can do, but based upon what Christ did. And then he asked the question, and this was important because this was one of the divisive issues even within the early church. Verse 29, or is he just the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? These are questions that were asked. And then again, notice his response to his own questions. Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith, that is the Gentiles, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. There were Jews that would read this epistle and thought, he's the, he's the God of the Hebrews. He's the Hebrew God. He's the Jewish God. Not the God of everyone. No, Paul said, listen, he's also the God of the Gentiles. Jew and Gentile are saved the same way, by faith in Christ. And by the way, let me say this, that is the only way that a person can be saved. Regardless of what country you live in, what background you came up under, Jesus made it emphatically clear he was the one way to salvation. Not one of many ways, but the only singular, exclusive way to heaven. That's what he said. Not just the God of the Jews, not just the God, he's the God. Of, at the cross, it's level ground. Everybody comes in the same way. There is a door that you walk through, and Jesus is that door to salvation. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. The law is great. The law is fine. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's perfect, the Bible says, converting the soul. There's nothing wrong with the law. On the contrary, we establish the law. The law is righteous. It is true. We're guilty under it. But this is righteousness apart from the law revealed to the finished work of Christ. This incredible provision of salvation, according to to the plan of God, eliminates a few things. Number one, it eliminates pride. No one can boast. It's the work of the Lord. It's all him. It's all Jesus. My salvation, from the moment I came to him and continue to walk with him, I, I, am, I, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will ultimately be saved, and it's because of his grace. It's because of his grace. It also eliminates prejudice. 
That salvation is just for this group of people or this particular nation. No. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. The gospel's for everybody. But third, it also eliminates presumption. That somehow the law has been done away with. It still serves its purpose. The law is firmly established, for it is the word of God. This morning, in light of this passage that we've read today, these verses, we have the privilege. I can't think of a better day to take communion than today. Because what we're doing here this morning is like the exclamation point to everything we just read. This is, this is the symbolic meaning, a reminder to us of our salvation, redemption, justification, propitiation, and ultimate glorification. This is a reminder to us. Now listen carefully. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible does give some warning concerning taking communion in a worthy that is, or in a way that is unworthy. That is, if you're not a Christian, communion's not for you. It's for the believer. And there is some warning about a person who would take it in a way that was not a believer and that you shouldn't. In other words, if you're not saved, when communion comes, about, comes by today, just let it pass you by. Don't, don't partake of it. There's a warning concerning it. But I want to give you another suggestion. Why not call upon the name of the Lord today? Why not agree with what the Bible says? That you, like everybody else who has ever lived, is a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. He's already paid the price. Come to him by faith. Say, Lord, today's the day. I want to serve you for the rest of my life. I may not understand everything, but I understand you died for me and you rose again and you're the only way to salvation and I want salvation. And you receive that by faith and you will be saved. And then when communion comes around, you can take it because it'll mean something to you because you'll be a child of God. Will you pray with me this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion? Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. As he has done for us what was outside of our ability to accomplish. Sinners saved by grace. Lord, we deserved wrath. And yet, you provided redemption. We deserved punishment. You provided freedom. And Lord, today we want to honor you and remember the work that you did for us. Lord, meet us here this morning. Give us a greater understanding of the work and the power of the cross of Christ. 
and all that it means. In Jesus' name, amen.